Well, good morning. We're going to pray for Betsy's foot to get better, too. So, it's great to be with you. Hello, my name's Todd. I'm one of the elders here. Most of you know me. Um, and I'm excited for this Advent season, too, but it seems like we've gone directly from Thanksgiving um, to Advent, right? It's just like we went from the eternal fall to winter, and I was laying in bed wondering where my house was going to leak and where all this water was going to end up going and what I'll be fixing in the next week or so. But I, too, um, yeah, that wasn't funny, apparently. So, all of your houses don't leak, so I get it. I, too, am excited for uh, this Christmas season, um, but particularly for what we're going to be doing in church for the next four weeks. Um, several years ago, um, my friend Tim Souza turned me on um, to this Christmas album called Behold the Lamb of God, written by a guy by the name of Andrew Peterson from Nashville. And uh, John and the worship team performed it to us, for us about seven years ago on Christmas Eve. But on December 22nd, our worship team is going to be leading us through the music on Behold the Lamb of God. And you might be wondering, what is it? Well, one thing it is, it's my favorite Christmas album of all time, okay? Uh, well, how do you explain it? Did anyone heard of Handel's Messiah, right? The classical um, piece of music written by Handel that explains the coming of the Messiah. Well, if Handel was a singer-songwriter from Nashville, Tennessee, this is what it is, okay? So it's a contemporary kind of folky country, but it tells the story of Christmas or God with us from the very beginning of the Bible um, through the end in about 45 minutes. So... Um, it is spectacular. We had it on in the car as we were driving back from Thanksgiving. And my kids have heard it so much, they were mocking Tammy and I as we listened to the music as they sing along. So I don't know if you can give you a better um, recommendation from that. Um, if you want to pick up a copy of this, um, and I encourage it to you, we'll send out a link to it in the um, newsletter that goes out and put it on the website. Um, but you can find it on Amazon or wherever you buy your music. It, it's phenomenal. If you're familiar with the st- songs in the story, um, I think it'll be even better. But the other thing that we've done for the next three weeks as we prepare for Christmas and that, we've gone ahead and looked at that piece of music and see how they divide it up into certain parts, right? Three parts of the Christmas story are God coming to be with us. And the next three Sundays in church, we're going to address those three parts. The first one is this idea of God with us isn't one that just showed up when Jesus was born. It has been the way God has thought and interacted with us from the very beginning of Genesis. The second aspect of the story um, that's part of the Christian life is that as we celebrate Advent, we wait for him, don't we? We waited for him to show up the first time, and we waited wait for him to show up the second time. And then finally, on the last Sunday before um, we sing um, together, Behold the Lamb of God, uh, we celebrate the coming of the King. The fact that God wanted to be with us and was so dead set, that's a funny phrase, but true, ultimately, not the Christmas story, on being with us that he became one of us, huh? How unexpected and miraculous and one of the things that makes Christianity so unique. So we're going to be taking a look at those themes. Um, And I hope that as we do, um, it just regrounds us into the wonder that is our story. That we have a God that loved us so much that he became part of us. Let's pray again as we get ready for what's next. Lord Jesus, I thank you that um, you have not left us alone. I am in awe of your love for us and the persistence which you um, go to to show it to us, even when we walk away. 
I ask this morning for me and my friends here that we might have hearts that are open to hear you, um, ears and eyes that are attuned to you, um, and that we might leave here knowing the depth, even a little bit better, of your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last year I saw this book called Advent. It was written by a famous preacher from the East Coast, and I bought it, and I picked it up. And as I was reading through it, I discovered that I am really bad at Advent, right? Advent isn't the celebration of Jesus being born. Advent is primarily the act of waiting for Jesus to be born. And I've got a confession to make to you. I'm not good at waiting. I like it now, and I like it the way I want. You know what I'm good at? I'm good at Amazon Prime, right? I click the button and it shows up. But there's something about our story where we're asked to wait and hope. What it means to be human somehow or what it means to be a follower of our God is one that knows that he is good and we're willing to wait and hope for him as we grow up into his likeness. And that's what we're going to do in the next couple weeks. My next two weeks with you, we're going to talk about why we wait. Because we know that God has been with us and will be with us again. Um, and then next week, we're going to talk about the act of waiting and what it does for us. So that's great news, and I hope it will be as fruitful for you as it's been for me as I've prepared for Advent this week. And I was doing this, preparing for this, I was struck by um, a book that Tammy had been reading our family. Now, I did do the hard pitch for Behold the Lamb of God because I think it's brilliant and it's actually helped me, but I'm not doing a hard pitch for Percy Jackson, but wanted to share with it with you. What Percy Jackson is, is it's a children's book that's basically a rip-off of Harry Potter that has a hero that's a teenage boy who's struggling with the fact that his father, who is Poseidon, and his mother, who is a human, so he's a demigod, um, goes around saving the world from all kinds of catastrophe. But at the heart of his story is this question, is is my dad or are the Greek gods good? And the real troubling thing for him is that he's never met his dad and he's not sure that his dad, Poseidon, the Greek god, wants to be with him. Now you might be, and rightly so, asking why in the world am I talking about this at Christmas? But it... Rick Jordan, Riordan, excuse me, who wrote the book, somewhat faithfully captures the way the ancients thought about their gods. The real question going on for our hero, Percy Jackson, in these stories that Tammy's been reading us, is that does my dad love me? Is he good for me? Will he identify with me? Or is he just going to stay far away and distant and use me for whatever he can get from me? Can you hear how foreign that is to the story of our God? It's just night and day, isn't it? But that's primarily the story of the gods in the ancient world that the Old Testament and Jesus stepped into. Gods were treated with a good deal of suspicion and fear in their worlds. Whether it was the gods of Olympus, the gods of Egypt, or the gods of Babylon. All the gods wanted for us was our service. And they, like everything else in humanity, were about using us for what they could get for us. And now hear our story. The story of God with us, which is so very different, isn't it? 
Our story starts with a God who makes this world and says over and over again, it's what? It's good, huh? He made it and it was good. When I first read that as a young believer, I thought, wow, isn't that awesome? God made it and it was excellent. It was awesome. But he doesn't actually say that. He says it was good, huh? Because the final world that we will live with him in will be excellent and awesome. This one's good. And good's good, right? I'm not knocking good, but I just wanted to point that out. Um, But notice that when our God makes this good world and he sets it in us, he puts us in a garden, doesn't he? Today we're going to tell the story of God with us in a garden and God with us in a desert. So let's see the first thing that we hear about God in Genesis chapter 2 when he places us in that garden and what his intentions are for us and how he treats us. In Genesis 2 we're told, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Being the son of a nut farmer, that is a good line right there, right? He made all kinds of trees that grew out of the ground. And these trees were pleasing to the eye, and they were good for food. It's a simple story, but it's packed with so much importance for us. What are some of the things that we hear about the character of our God and His intentions for us? The first thing is that He planned to sustain us, didn't He? What did He give us? Trees with fruit that were good for food. He put us in a garden and gave us so many trees that we didn't have to work or toil, but we picked and harvested. And he wasn't just the kind of God who was utilitarian and said, all you need is the practical things, not only to give you these trees and this food, but he made it beautiful. Right? They were pleasing to the eye so that we might see what God's created. And we still have this experience sometimes, right, where we see what he's given us and we take, we're in awe of it. I love my dad. He's getting up there a little bit. And I don't know about your dad's, but my dad tends to tell the same stories over and over again. One of his favorite stories is about when Tammy's parents came to the ranch for the very first time. And he took them out. And they're from Hawaii, so they have lots of great fruit. But they don't have peaches like we have peaches. And they ate a peach right off the tree. And um, Tammy's dad said to my father, that's the best tasting peach I've ever eaten, right? Um, It's the abundance and wonder of our God. He didn't want to just give us manna. He wanted to give you the best tasting peach you've ever eaten. And he put them in a garden, right? Nothing bad ever happened. Well, I shouldn't say that. Something bad does happen in the garden, right? That's the place we go to rest, huh? You ever hear of a war or a battle being fought as a garden? As soon as it happens, it's no longer a garden. He put us in a good and beautiful place. He put us in peace or shalom. The God of our story that finally shows up in the person of Jesus sustains us, gives us a beautiful world, and puts us at peace. But he's not done there. He's got more than just providing for us. He wants to be in relationship with us. And the God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. From the very beginning of our story, God's nature is triune. He's in relation with himself and he longs to be in relationship with us and wants us to be in relationship with one another. He's so committed to that in the story. Does he make the woman right away? 
No, he makes all the animals of the world and can't find a suitable helper for him until finally creation comes to its perfect completion in woman. And the two are like flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. You know the story from there. And there God has given the man to the woman and the woman to the man so that they might not be alone. And the final thing I want us to see about this story about God with us in the garden is that he makes it known right before the end of the story that he was physically or present with us in that garden. Right as he comes to find Adam and Eve as they've betrayed him, we hear that the Lord God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Our God isn't like the God of Percy Jackson who's distant and far away and doesn't want to associate with us, doesn't have time for us. Even in our worst moments, he says that I'm going to be there with you. An incredible start to our story. I think this is probably the best picture of what we have of what heaven will look like when we get there. The place where we are with God, in a garden, at peace, in relationship, where we're sustained with fruit, it will be beautiful, and the way God always wanted it to be. But sadly, our story doesn't end like that, does it? The garden didn't end well. We couldn't let God be God and had to take control for ourselves, didn't we? He said, just don't do one thing. And so you know what we did? The one thing. And he said, you know what? If you want to be on your own and act like your own, that's fine. Here you go. You can go east of this garden, out into the world, and see how it goes for you. And it doesn't go well, does it? If you want to read bad news, read the end of Genesis 3 through Genesis 11. And it goes from bad to worse to worse. Until finally one guy named Abraham shows up and there's faith in him. And God forgives us and says, I reckon you or call you righteous. Not because you're good, you give away your wife twice and you're fearful a bunch of times. Um, But in your heart and soul, you trust me. And God said, I promise you will have a son. He gets one son whose name is Laughter, Isaac, who ends up being kind of laughable who has another son, two sons named Jacob and Esau who fight with one another. But Jacob find, or God finds Jacob in the desert and will not leave him alone and will not let him go. And from Jacob come 12 more sons. And you might think the story is going to turn to the good there. Well, it kind of does and it kind of doesn't, does it? Of those 12 sons, the youngest is a guy named Joseph who ends up being heroic, but not before he's obnoxious. So obnoxious that his other 11 brothers can't stand him and sell him into slavery in Egypt. And he's taken away and he doesn't find his brothers again until they run out of food in the desert and have to come to Egypt, the place where there's a garden or a river at least. Um, And Joseph saves them, doesn't he? But the Israelites end up in Egypt and they're there for a long time. And even that story doesn't end up well because the Israelites end up being slaves to the Egyptians, don't they? Their primary job is to make bricks, and they do it at the hand of a cruel master who's constantly driving and asking more for them than they could. But even at that point, God doesn't give up on them. He raises up a guy who's not good at speech named Moses, and he sends them to his people and to Pharaoh and says, what does he say? Let my people go, right? We've sung the song. 
And he rescues them, huh? And finally, after plagues and much coercion, God convinces the Egyptians to let this people go and they head out into the desert and they walk through the Red Sea and God leads them and is with them again. How is he with them in that desert? What does he look like? We're told a couple things, but first before we get there, is this a good place? Vince taught us through Exodus, that was probably eight, nine years ago now, but one of the things that he told us over and over again about Egypt is Egypt was the breadbasket of the Mediterranean because it had this giant river flowing through it that always had water. The Egyptians have now left the certainty and the comfort and the predictability of the Nile for a desert to follow a God who they're just getting to know again. And the desert's the place where people go not to thrive, but to die, huh? So this is the way our story unfolds. God has rescued them from the Egyptians, and he did it in miraculous style by taking them through the Red Sea, right? And they're out in the desert, and this is what God says to them in Exodus 13. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. And so they could, not travel, they could, so they could travel by day or by night, either the pillar of cloud by day, or the pillar of fire by night left its people in front. Uh, let me try that again. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of cloud, fire by night left its people in fr- left its place in front of its people. Isn't it interesting that God made His presence known by cloud and fire? And when God showed up again the next time, what did our story this morning? How did He make His presence go? He put a bright fire in the sky so that they'd see where he'd come to. God's people were in the desert. They were at peril and at risk. And the first thing that God, or one of the prominent things that God does for them, it says, my presence will not lead you, leave you. And whether it be by day with the cloud or by night with the fire, that is going to be a reminder to you as you walk in this desert that I am with you. But look, what good does it do me to know that God is with me if I'm in a desert with no food or no water? So what does God do? Nehemiah reminds us, you did not withhold your manna from their mouths and you gave them water for their thirst. God doesn't leave them in the desert and say, I'm with you, but you're going to starve and (laughs) die of thirst, right? He miraculously, every day, makes bread fall from the heavens. And they would get up every morning, day by day, and there'd be just enough for that day. Their daily bread, huh? And when you're in the desert, water is really important. And Moses would stick his staff on the rock, and the rock would do what? Produce water for them to live by. So not only did God provide for them, well, provide for us in the garden, he provided for them in the desert as well. And then because he knows that sometimes we have a tendency to doubt and hope is an important part of the Christian life, he didn't end there in providing for them with cloud as presence and manna and water sustain them. He gave them hope for the future. I will give it to you as an inheritance a land flowing with milk and honey, 
I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. As they're walking in the desert, God tells them, I will give you a new garden. A new garden that overflows with the abundance, this time the abundance of milk and honey. If you will be faithful and be my people. So even in the desert, God provides for them. But that's not all he does for you, does for us and for them. In the desert, God's also relational, isn't he? Exodus 6 says, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Remember I said Percy's main trouble with the Olympians is that he didn't know if his father wanted to identify with him? The God of Israel tells his people here, you and I are going through this together. I am your God and you will be my people. And that's exactly what they agree to later on in Deuteronomy. But that's not enough for him. He knows they need just more than identity. You guys might have heard I love coaching kids, right? It's been one of the joys of my life um, watching these boys blow up and, and going with them. But you know what? It's not just enough to go out on the field and say, I'm your coach, you're your players, let's play baseball, right? These guys need instruction. They need to be told what to do and what not to do in order to be better baseball players. That's what it means for me to care for them as a coach, right? And isn't that exactly what God does for these people, the Israelites and us, when he gives us a law? He says, you came down from Mount Sinai and you spoke to them from heaven. And you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commandments that are good. He didn't give us a law to rein us in and make sure we had no fun. He gave us a law because he knew we needed it. And what the law was supposed to do was show us his character. What's he like? He knew we had the tendency towards selfishness. And so he gave us laws that say don't steal, don't kill, don't lie, and do sex the right way so that it produces life, not death. Those were part of his good character too, weren't they? He was coaching us on how to be his people. So both in the desert and in the garden, we have a good God, don't we? A God who's relational, present, and provides for us. But what's this mean? What does it mean for my day as I walk out of this building? How is it going to change the way I live my life? And I've been thinking about that for a couple days. And I've been struck with the fact, you know, that of all the things that we spend our time and energy for or in in this life, we spend a lot of time and effort looking for people to be our friends, don't we? Let's talk about the ultimate friend, our spouse, right? I just went to a wonderful wedding a couple weeks ago. A lot of work went into that thing. And the wedding wasn't even the front of it, huh? Think how much time and energy we spend on trying to find the right person, get the person to love me, get the person to continue to love me once they figure out who I really am. It can be the consuming event of our entire life, huh? We spend a lot of time and energy thinking about that. And then it happens and we become parents. And we spend a lot of time and energy trying to control who our kids' friends are. 
Or we pray that our kids have friends, right? Remember the first time you sent them off to preschool or whatever and you hoped and prayed, God, I hope they find a friend. One of the things that I've taken joy at or hoped for as I've had twins is that comfort by the fact, maybe it's delusional, but at least they'll always have each other, right? Why all this effort on finding people to be with us? Because that's the way God made us. What was the first bad thing to happen in the creation? For man to be alone. And what did God do for us? He came to live with us. And be with us. And provide for us. And care for us. And walk alongside us. And he kept doing it over and over again because we didn't get it. Until finally he came and became one of us. Amazing. So what do we learn? We learn that we have a new kind of God, don't we? The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. The God who becomes one of us isn't like the gods of Percy Jackson. We can tell by what he does that he's good. And he has no hesitancy about identifying with us, doesn't he? He is so committed to showing us that he wants to be with us that he ultimately becomes one of us. That is commitment, my friends. From the very beginning of his story, not just at Christmas, he is being set, telling us over and over again, I'm with you. I am Emmanuel, the one who is with you. But you know what the most amazing part of this story for me, and I've, I've known God is with us, we've sung about it for years at Christmas, is I love the contrast between God with us in the garden and God with us in the desert. We're good at understanding that God is with us when everything's going well, huh? When I'm rich, I've got a girlfriend, school's going well, certainly easy to say God has blessed me and is with me and goes before me. When I'm sick and alone and desperate, I'm more often to say, where is God? But the story of the garden and the story of the desert reminds us that he's there both times, huh? He never quits on us, whether we're in his perfect world or hanging on for dear life. He's committed to go with us and do it however he has to do. And ultimately, in a couple of weeks, when Brian comes to teach about the birth of Jesus, we'll see that in its fullest, won't we? How do we know this is true? There's a great word in the Old Testament called, it's hesed. Okay? And it gets translated love or loving kindness in your English, or English translations. But I love this world because it's not a love that's an emotional love or the kind of stuff that you see in a Hallmark movie where it's all like soft and fuzzy, right? This is a love that says, I know that it's true because it looks back at history and sees someone's faithfulness in what they've done for me. Israel knows that God's loved them and committed to be with them because he's proven it in what he's done for them. Do you remember the verse? They will know that you will be my people and I will be our God because I brought you out of Egypt. I saved you. 
that language we use about having a relationship with God, that God saved us, first started when God saved them from the Egyptians and then saved them from the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks. But ultimately, he saves us from ourselves, doesn't he? How do we know that we have this God? Because we've seen him act in history time and time again. He did it with Abraham. He did it with Jacob. He did it with Moses. He did it with David. He did it with Jeremiah. And most profoundly, he acted in history with the person of Jesus who came and walked for us, with us, died for us, and rose again to show us who he is and how he loves me. He's been relentless about coming to us and being with us throughout all history. And all he asks for us from us is faithfulness. What does all this mean for us? How does it change us? It means that if we believe it, we will never be alone. It's that simple. He didn't leave the Israelites alone. And he won't leave us alone either. Amen? John is going to come sing with us. The prayer team is going to come up front. If you need to be prayed for, we're going to close our time singing about the faithfulness of our Lord.